All right. Well, since the beginning of this year here at Rio, we've been saying that we plan to spend the entirety of this year, pretty much at least, actively seeking to enter into the story of our king. And we've said as well that the king whose story we're actively seeking to enter into is none other than King Jesus. And then lastly, if you've missed it, we've said that we will spend this year actively seeking to enter into the story of King Jesus by going back into the Old Testament. And there in the Old Testament, studying through the books of First and Second Samuel, which may confuse you a little bit if you haven't been hanging with us, because you might be thinking, wait, wait a minute, Tom, sorry, I'm just joining you, but here's the deal. I know a few things about the Bible, like, for example, that in the Bible we have the Old Testament, which, newsflash, was written and completed over 400 years before Jesus was even born. And then we have the New Testament, which was written entirely after Jesus was born. And so then, Tom, if you want to help lead us into the story of the king and the king is Jesus, shouldn't we be spending our time in the New Testament? And my answer to that is no. I mean, we could, clearly, but we don't have to. And the reason for that is that Jesus is not just some man who was born on a particular date in a particular place in time and space and history and therefore chronologically fits within the context of Old Testament which came entirely before him and New Testament which came entirely after him. Guys, Jesus, and we've got to get our minds around this, is heaven's great and eternal king. There has never been a time in which Jesus was not, just like there will never be a time in which Jesus will not be. And the point is that Jesus... Heaven's great and eternal king has been writing his story into the created order in which we live and into the scriptures by which we live, okay, since the beginning of time. And so then the whole Bible ultimately is about Jesus. But if we're going to come to see Jesus in places like the Old Testament, then we need to learn to read the Bible a little bit differently. And here's what I mean by that. We have been taught, particularly as American evangelical Christians, in the last hundred or so years that we must read the Bible and interpret it literally. Now, I just want to say that at least in one sense, I'm totally on board with that. I believe that all of the people, all the characters, all of the stories, all of that stuff that you find in the Bible, beginning with Adam and Eve, okay, the people, all of them, I believe, literally existed. Beyond that, all the sayings were said literally. All the teachings were taught, literally. All the events of the Bible. Now, I want you to think about how big of a statement this is. Noah and the ark. Jonah and the great fish. Moses and the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and the manna from heaven and the meeting on Mount Sinai. All of it. Jesus and all of his miracles walks on water, the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, the dead are raised. Nature obeys his voice. It was raining when you came in. Here's what you could not do this morning. You could not say, cease, be still, and then it all stops and you can come in dry. Did not work if you tried it. But that's because you're not him. Listen, I'm all in on all of that stuff, and I understand that puts me on a small island, but I want to tell you there's room on the island for others, and I hope that you'll join me there. I think it's the place to be. I am on that island. I'm all in on all of those things, literally, and here's why. Because if the God who spoke the worlds into existence, okay, himself exists, and that's what I'm in on, well then, tell me exactly what is too difficult for him. Explain to me what his limitations are. 
Tell me exactly what is it that's beyond his reach? What is it that he cannot do and therefore that you cannot believe him for? Let me tell you where we're going today. We're not there yet, but we're going to get there in a minute. The bottom line of the whole morning is that in Christ Jesus, you have a great God and King who can do absolutely anything. And so then when He does absolutely anything, either in His Word or in His world, I'm really not befuddled by that. Like, I'm not thrown off. I'm not miffed. I'm not like, oh, that's ridiculous. In fact, I kind of expect to see it. So in one sense, I'm on board with, you know, interpreting the Bible literally, but there's another sense in which I'm not on board with it at all, and here's why. Because the Bible is largely poetic, and I'm not just referring to the Psalms and to the Song of Solomon and to those places that are really obviously rhyme and meter and verse. The Bible, even in its narratives, even in its stories, is coming to us with symbols and types and signs and images and figures and pictures that it wants us to see and by which we get the real point, and without which we don't get the point at all. And so then I think that when we come to a largely poetic book and we say, thou shalt interpret it only literally, okay, well, we missed the point, and I'm going to give you a couple of really obvious examples. God comes to us and He calls us to gather under the shelter of His wings. Now, I want you to picture that if you have to take it literally for a second. I mean, it just doesn't work. It's silly. God's all of a sudden like a big chicken, and we're all of a sudden like little chicks, and God has wings, and really? I mean, is that the way it works? Doesn't that also, frankly, dumb down how beautiful it actually is? What is the point of that? The point is that you have a great God and King who can do absolutely anything, and here's what He invites you to do, to find shelter right up next to His heart. That is where your peace comes from. That is where your comfort comes from. That is where your safety comes from. That is where your security comes from. It doesn't come in your own devices. It doesn't come in your own plans and schemes. It doesn't come through your own machinations. It doesn't come through your ability to surround and insulate yourself with the things of this world. They will, in the end, fail you and leave you really insecure. There is one source and sense of security in this life and in the next. It's your great God and King who, by the way, can do absolutely anything. All right, one more example. The chronicler comes to us in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, and he says this. He says that the eyes of the Lord, now picture it literally for a minute and try not to laugh out loud, okay? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. All right, take it literally. If you take it literally, God has a set of eyes, literally. And I guess God's eyes have legs, Right? And the legs must have feet. He's a runner. And he's got a sweet shoe endorsement deal because, I mean, you can imagine God has infallibly chosen Nike. I mean, every other shoe company might as well just shut down at that point. And he runs all over the world. You're like, yeah, but the world is mostly covered by water. Yeah, but he walks on water, so that's not a problem. That's why when you watch television, occasionally you'll have this news flash. It'll break into your regularly scheduled program and they'll apologize, but not really because they're going to go to Montana where the eyes of the Lord have been spotted and they're watching him from a helicopter running through the fields looking to show himself. I mean, come on, it's absurd. It takes you to the land of absurdity. And I'm doing that on purpose, okay? But here's what it does. It causes you to miss the point. You know what the point is? The point is that you have a great God and King who, if you haven't got it yet, can do absolutely anything. And please don't miss this. He is actively, 
He is passionately. He is enthusiastically. He is constantly. He is with great vigilance ever looking for ways to show himself strong in support of those whose hearts have been made blameless toward him through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty sweet deal. That beats eyes with legs and a Nike endorsement contract. And that is your king too. So look, the Bible is largely poetic. It speaks in symbols, types, signs, figures, images, pictures, etc. And when you force a literalistic interpretation upon poetic language, you miss the point. And here is what else you miss. You miss Jesus, the story of your king. And let me give you the elements of his story. Life, suffering, death, burial, and third day, third day, resurrection from the dead, all of which is prefigured poetically throughout the Old Testament again and 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 again, and all of which He endured to deliver you from sin and death and to make the point with you that you forever belong to a great God and King who can do absolutely anything. We pick up our study this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 4, where we find the story, and if you've done your personal worship, you know this, of the Israelites who go out to battle against their arch enemies, the dreaded, hated Philistines. Ah! And they go out to battle, no doubt, thinking that they're going to win the battle. And here's why, because they are the people of the God who can do absolutely anything. So, I mean, you know, like, who can stand against us? Well, I guess the Philistines can, because they get whipped by the Philistines. 4,000 of their soldiers, not an insignificant sum of men, die, and then they regather. They come back to the camp licking their wounds or whatever, and they sit down to try to figure this deal out, and they think through it theologically. And I want you to hear and think through their thought process, because it's very relevant for us as well. They sit down and they go, okay, wait a minute, we've got to start with the premise that our God can do absolutely anything. Everybody good with that? We're like, yep, okay. Okay, next. If our God can do absolutely anything, then He must have allowed us to be defeated. So wait a minute, God allows His people to be defeated? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And then they said, but since He's not just the all-powerful God, but He is also the all-purposeful God, and the whole of Scripture gives witness to this, He therefore then must have allowed them, and occasionally me, and occasionally you, to be defeated for a reason. But then instead of humbling themselves before this God, instead of prostrating themselves on their face before this God, instead of repenting of their sin and and confessing all of their inadequacies, Instead of seeking humbly the reason why they were defeated, they did what I kind of often do and what you kind of often do. They punt on God in some sense. They take matters into their own hands and they march right back out to fight the Philistines again. But this time, in a very manipulative way, they take God, and I'll put that in quotes, with them. Now, how is that? Well, again, if you've done your personal worship, you know that just before they went back out to fight the Philistines the second time, they came to Eli. And if you've been hanging with us this year, you know some things about Eli. Eli is the wicked high priest of the nation of Israel at this time. He is spiritually blind. He is physically blind. He is a gluttonous fool. Good enough? 
And he has two famously wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, his right hand and his left hand. They come to these guys and they say, okay, here's the deal. Uh, We're going to go back out and fight and we want to take the Ark of the Covenant with us, the Ark, and the, Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant then, representing in their day the very throne of God. God was said to reside between the gold cherubim on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So what then is the Ark of the Covenant if you just kind of go above the story, sort of ascend up to about 36,000 feet and look down at the big ideas of it for a moment? The Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God, physically in some sense, on planet Earth in their day. We want to take God with us. And the corrupt priesthood of Israel give them the ark. And Hophni and Phinehas go with it. And they go out to battle against the Philistines. And what happens? Well, the same thing that happens to us. God proves to them and then teaches us through their lessons that God is not a lucky charm, man. You find yourself in a jam and you go into your closet and you pull out that box full of junk and you you look through it until you find the rabbit's foot that is God, you know, and it's kind of coming to pieces and you blow off the dust and you rub it real well because you need God to help you finish your plan. Come on, God, I need you to come through for me. Oh, no, it doesn't work that way. He's not a lucky charm. He's not like a secret weapon on your football team. I mean, it's Super Bowl Sunday, so we can talk about football. You know, he's like this guy, and he sits on the bench. He sits on the bench? Yeah, you know, in the game of your life. And you're the coach, and you're the quarterback, and all of that stuff. And, you know, it's the fourth quarter, and it's coming right down to it. And you need a score, and you've got this trick play, and you've got this special secret weapon player called God. And so you have to call a timeout so God can get warmed up and stretch out because it's been a long time since he's actually been in the game and done anything. But nevertheless, he gets warmed up and stretches out, and you call him into the game. And, okay, God, we need to, you know, do the Hail Mary, and we need you to, like, leap above everybody else and catch the pass so I can win. I can win? Me? God's like, no, no, sorry. That doesn't work. God is not some highly paid consultant. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Thank the Lord, because every once in a while, I want to call him up and ask him a question. I need a little counsel, not on everything, God, just on this one little thing that I can't seem on my own to get figured out. So if you could just help me with this, and then I can hang up the phone, and we can talk again someday if I ever need you. He is our great God and King. Our lives are His. The game? Okay, that would be His too. The goal? Score for us? No. No, no, no. Score for Him. The coach? It's pretty clear, isn't it? He's not a consultant. He doesn't come alongside so we can consider His advice. He captures and takes us as His own. He purchases us with His own blood. He says, you are mine and I own you. And there is no place that you'd rather be than that. It's the most beautiful place to be. But the Israelites don't get that, and we don't always get that either, I confess. So they take the ark of God. They take God Himself, if you will, put it in quotes, out into battle with them. And notice what happens. We find it in 1 Samuel 4, beginning in verse 10. It says, so the Philistines fought, and Israel, uh uh-oh, was defeated. And this time it is a really devastating defeat. 
It says, and Israel was defeated and they fled, every man to his own home, and there was a very great slaughter this time. For this time, not just 4,000, no, this time 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark, which again represents the physical God of, or presence of God himself on the earth in that day, was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, his right hand and his left, dead. So, Fly back up to 36,000 feet with me for a second, okay? Look down at the story. Big ideas. What's happened? What's happened is that the wicked and corrupt priesthood of Israel has taken the physical manifestation of God in their day, God himself, if you will, and through their blindness and through their foolishness, they have turned him over to the Gentile Philistines. And what have the Gentile Philistines then done with God? They captured him and they took him to their foreign land, to Ashdod, one of their cities. They take God into exile, guys. And exile in the Bible, as we'll see in a minute, is an image of death. It's an image of death because we're thinking poetically. What is exile? It's death. And none other than King Jesus tells us that. Jesus comes to us, for example, in the parable of the prodigal son. He said, let me teach you a lesson about exile. You ready? Here we go. I'm going to give you the story. And here's the story. You know the story. This rebellious son comes to his dad and said, dad, you know what? I am sick of waiting for you to die. I'm not going to lie. When you had that illness last month, I was kind of hoping this would be it. But it wasn't it. You recovered. Look, I can't stand being here any longer. I want you to give me your inheritance as if you've just died, and I'm going to take it, and I am going to go to a foreign land. I'm going to go into exile. And the father gives him the inheritance, and the son goes into exile. And there, out in the foreign land, it's a land of the Gentiles. He ends up working for a pig farmer. That's certainly not a Jew. There in the land of the Gentiles, he spends all of his money, and then he loses all of his friends with all of his money, disappears, and he wakes up one day, face down in a pigsty, in the land of the Gentiles, and he has this aha moment. He realizes, hey, wait a minute, it would be better for me if I would just humbly return to my father's home. And in humility and in repentance, there's a turning. He comes back to his father's home, and what does the father do? The father sees him, the father runs to him, the father weeps over him, the father kisses him, the father embraces him, the father covers over all of his filth with a robe, which is a picture of the righteousness of Jesus. He puts the ring of sonship on his hand, and he brings him into the house. And now listen to what he says. Luke 15, verse 23, coming out of the mouth of Jesus as he tells this story, the father says, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was living in exile in the foreign land. And now he's come back from exile. Well, that's actually what's happened. But that's not how he describes it. He speaks of it in terms of death and life, or really in terms of death and resurrection. He says, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead while he was away in exile. It's a picture of death. And now that he has returned, oh, wow. He's alive again. The return from exile is a picture of life. And so then after Israel is crushed on the battlefield, the God who can do anything has allowed himself, has he not, to be defeated. It's fascinating. 
and to be taken into exile, which is an image of death. So he's allowed himself to be defeated and and to die in some sense. All right, well, this messenger comes from the battlefield to report all of this to Eli, and there is Eli. You see this picture of him. He's 98 years old. He's very big, and he's completely immobile. That's actually an important part of the story. Every time you see Eli in any one of these stories that we've looked at thus far, he's immobile. He's seated or he's lying down. Those are your two options, but he's never in motion. And he's blind. So he's sitting there, blind and immobile, perfectly still. And the messenger arrives, and the messenger says to Eli, I've got three messages for you. I'm going to lead with this. Israel has been defeated, and it has been a terrible, tragic, devastating defeat. 30,000 of our men this time lost. And Eli is unmoved. Oh, and by the way, second part of the message, your two sons, your right and left hand, Hophni and Phinehas, okay, um, dead. And Eli is unmoved. Then the messenger says this, the ark of the Lord, the physical representation of God in this world, has been captured and taken by the Philistines, the Gentiles. And they have taken him back to their city. And the immobile Eli, upon hearing this, topples over off of his stool and breaks his neck. It's very significant. And then when his pregnant daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, one of his two wicked sons, heard all of this, what happened to her? You read the story, she goes into labor under such stress. And she gives birth to this boy. And she won't even look at the boy. She's lying there having given birth and she's dying from the childbirth. And they try to comfort her with the fact that she's given birth to a son. And she says, oh really? Well then let me name the son. I've got a very unique name picked out for him. You shall call him Ichabod. It means where is the glory? Or the glory has departed. Wait, go back up to 36,000 feet for a minute. Okay, so when the wicked and corrupt priesthood of Israel take the physical manifestation of God on this planet earth, and they in their blindness and foolishness hand it over to the Gentiles who then take it into exile, which is the emblem of death. The glory has departed from Israel. Meanwhile, you know, the Philistines are jacked. I mean, they're having a party. They think this is the greatest day ever. Not only have they defeated their enemies and slaughtered 34,000 of their soldiers in these two battles, but they've captured the God of Israel himself. And so they take God, again, put it in quotes, and they bring him into the temple of Dagon, this place of death, this temple of their God. And they set him next to Dagon like, you know, he's one of the court attendants of Dagon. And here's their thinking. Their thinking is, well, since we so brutally defeated our enemies and even more than that, captured the God of Israel, clearly our God Dagon is superior in power to the God of Israel. But there is another option. And the option is, yeah, but what if the God of Israel, who again can do anything, willingly allowed himself to be defeated? and to suffer death. What if he did that? For a reason. 
because he's not just the all-powerful king, he's the all-purposeful king. And again, his return from exile, which will happen on the third day, is a picture of resurrection. So the day they take him now and they place him into the temple of Dagon as you know, one of his court attendants, that's day one if you're counting days, and please do. So then we pick up the story in chapter 5, verse 3. It says, and when the people of Ashdod, that's where the temple of Dagon is located, rose early the next day, that is to say on the morning of the second day, behold, look at Dagon. He had fallen face downward on the ground in the posture of worship before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon... And, you know, helped him back onto his feet. Put him back in his place. Which is comical. It's funny if it wasn't so tragic. It's the author's subtle commentary on the idols of this world, on anything that you and I worship other than the true and the living God who can, incidentally, and does do absolutely anything on the ineptitude of what we worship, on the powerlessness of what we worship, on the reality that when what we worship is something other than the God of Israel. Okay, you know what we find ourselves doing at times? Apologizing for our God and helping our God back up onto His feet and somehow justifying our worship of Him. When the people of Ashdod rose early on the morning of the second day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground in the posture of worship before the ark of the Lord. And so they did for Dagon what, unfortunately, they had to do. You know, he's he's immobile. And they, they put him back in his place. But when they arose early on the morning of the third day, the day of deliverance all the way through the Bible for a reason. Behold! It's a word of sight. He's saying, look, I want you to see this. Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord once again, but this time the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands, his right hand and his left hand, were cut off on the threshold. So he lost his right hand, his left hand, and his head because his neck was broken so that only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And you know what they said. I mean, they came in and they saw him and they went, Dagon. That's actually in the Hebrew. It is. All right, back to 36,000 feet. Look down upon it. What's happening in this story on the morning of the third day, the physical manifestation of God here on earth in that day, who in the place of his guilty people voluntarily allowed himself to suffer defeat and death in some sense by being taken into exile, has himself triumphed over defeat and death. And he has crushed the head even of the God of the enemies of His people. And He's also in the process, by the way, judged the wicked priesthood of Israel because it's pretty clear, I think, that there's quite the comparison going on between Eli and the temple of Israel and Dagon and the temple of Dagon. Look, just like Dagon was immobile, Eli was immobile. Just like Dagon lost his right and left hands, well, Eli lost his two sons. Just like Dagon fell over before the Lord and his neck was broken, Eli fell over before the Lord and his neck was broken. And not only that, but God visited judgment upon the Philistine people. He afflicts them with tumors in this city of Ashdod. And the city of Ashdod goes, you know what? I think it's time for the ark to go to a new city. 
So they sent him to the next city, thus commencing his return from exile. It's a third day resurrection. He afflicts them with tumors. They go, you know what? Keep going. Pass him on to the next city. He afflicts them with tumors. And they try to pass him on to the next city. And the next city says, you know, I, I think we're good. You know, we'll just come visit. We're, we're fine. Now, you know what? We just need to send the God of the Israelites back to Israel. Let, let's work out that. And we'll see that next week. And they send him back with a guilt offering. So what are they acknowledging? We have sinned against the true and the living God. And there is a price to be paid for our healing. There's a consequence to our sin, a corruption, a sickness, death. And there is a price to be paid for the healing that we need. All right, so maybe you're thinking like it's your first time here and you're going, Tom, I've heard a lot of weird sermons, but this is seriously one of the weirdest I have ever heard. Um, Incredibly unusual. So what is the story really all about? Well, if you've been flying at 36,000 feet, then I hope you've already seen it. Because it's not just about Eli and Dagon and the two temples. and the, You know, it's not about that. It involves that, and that literally happened. Okay? But the literature is much deeper. The images are far more profound. The story is ultimately about Jesus, the true ark of God, who, yes, in the New Testament said, listen, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Paul comes along and says, all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily. He is God walking around in a body on planet Earth. That's who he is. And what happened to him? The corrupt priesthood of Israel did what? They took God on planet earth and they handed him over to the Gentile Romans. By the way, when that happens, the glory has departed from Israel and the Gentile Romans took him and did what? They didn't take him just into the land of exile. They took him into literal death. They crucified and killed God. And then placed him into a tomb for three days. And yet on the morning of the third day, Jesus, the true ark of God, triumphed over sin and over death and crushed the head, by the way, of the God of this world and the God of the enemies of his people. But more than that, he triumphed over the corrupt priesthood of Israel in that day as well, because when he died, it says that the veil was torn that shielded the Holy of Holies from, frankly, the rest of the world. It was said that in the Holy of Holies, God dwelt. And when the veil was torn, what was the message? The message was, you don't need a high priest to go in there for you anymore. You have a new high priest. His name is Christ, and by the blood of Him, He's also the true Passover Lamb, you can go approach God yourself. And the whole priesthood and sacrificial system, the whole functioning of the temple, gone. It's quite remarkable. And then as you study through the book of Acts, which we did all year last year, You see the gospel conquering city by city by city by city as the peoples of those cities in response to the movement of God's Spirit and to the preaching and proclamation and living out of God's Word in those cities humble themselves before the true King, the true and the living God, the only God who alone can do anything, and the God who, in the person of Jesus Christ, voluntarily allowed Himself to suffer defeat and death, that He might then, in resurrection life, offer to us victory and eternal life. Oh, 
and to make the point as well that he can do absolutely anything. So I want to close with a couple of questions to you guys. And the first one is, is have you come to that place where you go, you know what? (laughs) My sin against this God has created for me a debt uh, and I can't pay it. Because the gospel is that that's what Jesus has done for you. That's what Jesus offers to you. Gold will not cut it. (laughs) That's what the Philistines offered. There's only one thing that can pay your debt, and that is the blood of Christ. And you need to come to Him and repent of your sin, confess your need for Him, and claim His blood on your behalf and be healed and made new. But then secondly, as I thought about this message, I thought, you know, I want to ask you, what have you written off as being too difficult even for Jesus? I mean, you know, what is that thing that for you, it's it's too hard for him? Even Jesus can't fill in the blank. And therefore that you cannot believe him for. Because again, if you haven't heard it, the message of this story, and a large part of the Bible really is that, hey, Jesus is the great God and King. And Jesus can do absolutely anything. Amen. Well, as I pray, Brad and Vanessa Johnson and Carter are going to come up. Brad and Vanessa lead a ministry that we're well familiar with here at Rio, which is Mission of Hope, and they lead it in a place that a lot of Christians, if they were really honest, would have to admit that they look at and go, I think that might be beyond the reach of Jesus. And they're here to tell you that it's not. They believe in a God who can do anything. And they have lived the privileged life of seeing Him do anything over and over and over and over again. So it's awesome to have them with us. And it's a privilege to hear their story, or at least that much of it this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You uh, that there is a God, um, Lord, and that You can do absolutely anything. We thank You that in love You voluntarily suffered defeat, that You might reclaim us from our defeat and loss. God, we thank You that in love You suffered death, that You might claim us from eternal death. Lord, we thank You for the humility and for the grace and for the mercy that is ours through our great God and King who is Jesus and who can do anything, Lord, and who has proven it by rescuing us, which is no small feat. Lord, I pray that You would awaken our hearts and our minds to our great God and King, that You would take our eyes off of our lives as though they belong to us. It's our game, it's our story, it's our plan, it's our agenda. My goodness, don't let us waste ourselves and waste our lives on such nonsense. Let us give our lives and hearts to Christ. And let us witness His great resurrection power in our marriages, in our parenting, in our businesses, in our church, in our city, and all around the world, including places like Haiti. God, we pray that You would, for Your glory, move and that we might ever praise You for it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.